to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and of course CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Kunal Parikh, who is doing a master's in ageing and health under the supervision of Dr. Lynn Haslam Lama. Welcome to GradChat, Kunal. Thank you so much for having me here. And we're very privileged, actually, because Kunal did the drive down from Ottawa to be in the <laughs> studio with us today. So we're very fortunate with that. And, and it's all about getting that radio experience, isn't it? A hundred percent. What did I not give to just put these headphones on? <laughs> and they look fabulous on you, too. So they <laughs> yeah, fit the part, as they, as they say. So... Let's, let's find out. I would like to find a bit more of background about you. I mean, I know you did your undergrad in India, but you are now are a, a Canadian citizen. So what made you come to Canada, if you don't mind me asking? Of course. I did my undergrad in med school in India. So I practiced as a physician for about three years. And that is when I realized that there has to be more to healthcare than just clinical medicine. Mm -hmm. I wanted to explore more about patient safety and quality improvement. Right. And there is such a vital role technology plays into providing us with better outcomes for healthcare. And that was my main goal. I wanted to study further and also to share a little more about my context. I was a little burnt out as a physician. Right. It's just a lot working in a government setup when you're catering to the masses and you have so much going on, I wanted a little bit of a break, which is why I applied to the digital health program at Algonquin College in Canada. Uh -huh. And of course I got accepted. So that brought you here. That's what brought you to Canada in the first place. Exactly. Right. That is what brought me to Canada in the first place. And after doing that program, I've been working at a healthcare education company that right. provides education to caregivers of older adults. That is how I discovered my love for working with and for older adults. I feel like I finally found my calling. Right. And that is why I want to do the master's in aging and health. And here I am. And of course, but you're so you're still working with this company, and and is that more of an administrative side because you're not a practicing physician right now, or are you? I'm not a practicing physician. There's a lot of gap in recognition of licensure in international countries in Canada. So mm -hmm. I'm not a practicing physician at the company that I work at right now. It's called Truvalta. Look it up. Fantastic company. I began working as a product coordinator. So my role was to 
develop features and improve the usability of the platform. Right. And then through ta- uh, over the first six to eight months, my boss and I realized that I think I'm a lot better at keeping things in order and my organizational skills were right. pretty good. So I transitioned to an operations coordinator and again, over the next year, we realized, oh, I'm good with people. <laughs> so, Which is funny, and, and hopefully you were, being a physician before. <laughs> so. That's actually not always the case. <laughs> a lot of physicians I know are not good with have people. Got really they have bad bedside manner. They yes. have terrible bedside manner. But because I was... I found my energy Mm -hmm. from working with people. I transitioned to a client success manager role. And over the last six months, I've been working as an implementation manager. So providing that strategic advice to clients we partner with so that they're all set up for success and that their success is my success. Right, which is a great way to think about it too because you want at the end of the day, whatever you're working on to mean something to who you're working for. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's great. So, so like you said, you're now doing the Master of Science in Aging and Health, which is a what we call a blended program. So it's predominantly online, which allows you to continue to work. But there are a couple of times when you come into campus. How, how are you finding that? So I'm almost done. Nay, I am <laughs> done my master's. Excellent. I've finished all of the requirements and reflecting upon the last year of working full-time and also studying full-time, I have to say that time management was key to yes. everything. Mm-hmm. I There were days when I just worked 7 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the evening. I shut down my work laptop and then immediately after, I'm just opening my school laptop yes. to do a papers and assignments and reading and all of that good stuff so while it was extremely exhausting it took a lot out of me I have to say that it was one of the most enriching experiences of my life because I knew that I'm doing something that I genuinely love and that I definitely want to pursue wholeheartedly so the purpose is what fueled me And then, of course, uh, this is where I have to give a shout out to my partner. Days and days where I was just too engrossed in my laptops. And there was always a screen between him and me. He took care of dinners and all of of (laughs) the chores around the house. So that was really nice of him. You know, it makes such a difference when you've got a supportive partner to be able to do this. Because like you said, I mean, you're... If you're not at work, your your head's in the books. And that doesn't give a lot of downtime for you both. Absolutely. So I am a big fan of Taylor Swift. And Uh she received a doctorate degree at NYU last year. At her speech, she said, not one of us or not one of the graduates have done it alone. And I really felt that Mm -hmm. because it does take a village for such a big feed. Yes. Be it your professors who are helping you, be it um, your partners, be it your friends, your colleagues who are supporting you with emotional um, encouragement and reinforcement. Not one of us has done it by themselves. We have had 
support, whether we acknowledge it or not, is up to us. It's very true. I still remember we have this picture of one of our students who have had young kids. And they had this picture where she'd go, I made it, I did it. And then this little kid with a little sign, I helped too. <laughs> and I Absolutely. Go, it was just perfect, right? Because it, it, it does take everyone, everyone's support to help you get through it. So that is awesome. So I guess we should get on to what you did actually do during your, your Master of Science with your research topic, um, which is looking at virtual training programs for informal caregivers of older adults. So, I mean, obviously, you, you said before that you like working with the older generation, but what made you choose that topic? Was it because of your work that you're doing, the company you're working for as well? Uh, what made you to that? And then can you give us a bit of an overview of what you actually did within that? You're very spot on with that. The company that I work for, we provide healthcare education to family caregivers of older adults. Through my work and my professional experience, I have discovered that most of the care that is provided to an older adult at home is not by a PSW or is not by mm -hmm. a respite worker or a home health aide. It is provided by family members or neighbors or right. friends. Mm -hmm. And these informal caregivers often lack the training and education to provide care to someone else. Yes. It's such an isolating and overwhelming feeling when you're constantly questioning what you're doing. Am I doing this right? Am I doing enough? Am I too selfish for taking time for myself today instead of providing care to someone right. else? All very good points. So mm. the role of education in providing skills to caregivers is very recently being recognized. There's a lot of studies that identify that caregivers who have that education are able to provide better care to their loved ones. And also they have better health outcomes for themselves. So I wanted to take a 360 degree view or a bird's eye vantage point of what are all of these studies saying? Mm -hmm. They, of course, we can trust one-off studies based on how reliable they are. Are they uh, broadly generalizable? But then it's very important to do a, a full audit of literature yes. to see what are all of these studies saying? What is common among all of those? And that was the basis of my research project, which was a scoping review. I began with about 1,000 articles, and then I narrowed them down to about 13. Well, that was good, because I'm thinking, reading 1,000 articles, wow. Fortunately, I did not have to read 1,000. It's kind uh, of look at the abstract to see if you have an idea. Exactly. Uh, I did the abstract screening of, of about 850 articles, and then I, I read about 50 articles right. in full. Mm -hmm. And then I landed at 13, which I really felt answered the question that I was asking. Do these virtual training programs impact the self-confidence and self-efficacy of informal caregivers? Right, right. I mean, you could have gone all over the place. I mean, I like the fact you're looking at the informal caregivers because you're absolutely right. And, it, you know, I guess one of the other questions is, Am I doing the right thing by keeping 
my loved one or my family member at home or sh or is you know when is the right time that they should go and full time into a, a, a care place absolutely that is such a good point there's two opposite ends of the spectrum that i i see in my professional work and i also saw in the research that i did on one end there are caregivers who do not acknowledge that they are caregivers they just think that i'm being a good son and right. i am just taking care of my mom or i'm being a good wife and i'm taking care of my husband so there's a very glaring gap in self identification of those caregivers okay. and if you don't if you don't acknowledge your role there's minimal role of any intervention in the world right on the other end we have caregivers who would do whatever they can to prove that they they're the best at taking care of their loved ones mm -hmm. and it often is at the detriment of the health of their loved one there are times when the care recipient or the person that they're taking care of would really benefit from 24 hour nursing facilities right. or long term care homes mm -hmm. where they have supervision but the caregivers uh, take it as a personal challenge and it's uh, it's almost like the their own success is rooted in how long they can take care of their loved one is it just that though cuz sometimes economics come into play where they go i can't afford to put mum or dad into a long term care facility i am shocked by the prices of some of these retirement homes and long term care facilities one of the reasons that i was also inspired to go into the masters was uh, the book neglected no more by andre picard it cast a very bright light on how neglected the older adults are in the canadian society True. and how chronic care is just not a strong soon in our healthcare system all resources are focused on acute care whereas let's face it most of us are going to struggle with some chronic conditions at some point or other yeah. maybe not even struggle maybe just live with so the economics of the retirement homes definitely comes into play especially for the communities that are already marginalized yes people who belong to a lower socioeconomic strata they are more likely to be unable to afford these services and we've seen in literature they are more likely to experience negative or poorer health outcomes because they keep their loved ones at home the chances of them experiencing poorer health outcomes are magnified mm -hmm. so it's like an ever renewing cycle of marginalization mm -hmm. in society and it is a tricky one because you also know the the person you're caring for sometimes they go i just want to be at home I'll I hate to say this word I want to die at home I don't want to die at, at, at the place surrounded by people I don't really know and so you know there's so many additional complications in what is best for everybody that is also a really good um point one thing that I've read in a lot of my courses in the last year is the importance of place attachment so what let's let me mean? let's say as we grow old 
the chances of us losing our independence increase. Yes. And the meaning that we derive in life, uh, most of that meaning is from environmental factors. Uh, a nook in the corner of my home, which is my reading place, that provides meaning to me, that is significant to me. Right. For me to move from my own home to a retirement facility would mean that I'm losing a part of my own self-identity. I'm losing a part of my conscience. Mm -hmm. And most people will do whatever they can to avoid that. Right. And that is one of the key reasons people want to age in place, which I truly support. However, it is not something that only one person can do. It has to come with systemic reform. It has to come with organizational support. There's a lot more to aging in place than just an individual's desire to do so. To do so. Because I would imagine for those that do want to stay at home, it, again, it comes down to economics. How much can that family ha pay for a PSW? PSW, that's what, yes, to come in each day and, you know, bathe them and address them if, they, if, it's, if, if it's at that point. Or having another a nurse practitioner come in and provide certain medications that they may or may not need. So, again, it comes down to these economics of how much you can do, but also realising it comes to a point, got to break it. So it's... Choosing between a rock and a hard place, mm -hmm. do you, it's like choosing between a rock and a hard place. Do you uh, pay for a PSW to come in uh, to, to your home three times a week for one hour each? Or do you pay for your loved one to be transferred to a residential facility? Yeah. Research shows that aging in place is more economical for the individual and for the healthcare system, okay. which also aligns with the individual's aspiration of aging in place. However, does do all levels of government recognize that? Probably not. Yeah, good point. So it's interesting too, though, because at the moment we're, we're, we're talking about the caregiver making these decisions and education for the caregiver. But sometimes I, I wonder sometimes whether we should be doing more education to all of us. So when we get to a certain point in, in our lives, we should be thinking about, you know, what's best for my family, not just for me just because I want to stay at home. So, you know, there's two sorts of education going on, one for the, the caregiver and one for the actual person. A life course approach to education is so important because if we start thinking about retirement from a relatively younger age, we can plan for it accordingly. Yes. If I know that I would be much happier in a warmer place, I would probably buy a condo in Florida ahead of time so that I'm making that arrangement for myself. Yes. That is, of course, a very extreme example, <laughs> uh, also very superfluous. <laughs> However, you get what I'm saying. I do. I so do. a life course approach to education is definitely what I would advocate for. So with the review that you've done, when you talk about virtual training programs, what exactly are you trying to teach these informal caregivers? When I did the scoping review, I was able to identify the common topics and common content streams that were offered to the caregivers. 
and some of the most commonly used modules were about understanding the disease and common changes to expect. Most of the caregivers were providing care to someone with dementia and okay. it was important for them to understand what exactly is dementia, what are the different stages, what do I need to expect in terms of the behavioral and psychological symptoms okay. that my loved one is having. And then there was an aspect of management of those symptoms. It, it would be inappropriate if the caregivers went to the ER every time the loved one had a, a new symptom. For example, if right. they start wandering, there are some strategies that the caregiver can use to manage that within the home. The next time they see the family physician, they can discuss it with them. Right. But until then, mm -hmm. there are a lot of skills that the caregivers should be able to develop with these learning modules to manage these new symptoms. Okay, that makes sense. There's also a lot of importance of social and community resources that the caregivers need to access. Like we said in the beginning, not caring for someone takes a lot of people. It mm -hmm. is a group effort. So the caregiver is providing all of this care. But if there's a respite worker that comes in uh, that is provincially funded once in a week, it provides them some time to take care of themselves. Right. If they can access transportation services in the community, at least they don't have to worry about driving them to the physiotherapist appointment and then the caregiver also experiences a lot of emotions negative emotions particularly at times right so what support can they get exactly mm -hmm. supporting the caregiver because the caregiver is already supporting someone who is supporting the them. caregiver mm -hmm. you, you talked about for instance a, a, a classic example dementia which is a horrible disease what about, I mean, you can't have training modules for every disease that a person may get. So what about, I mean, that's more of a, usually more of a mental, like you said, psychological, as opposed to a physical. What kind of training modules if, for, for, if you're looking after someone with, say, a physical disease? So most of the skills that are required to care for someone they would be diagnosis or disease agnostic. So and what does that mean? Sorry, just to make sure everyone understands. Thank you for catching me on that. Uh, I tend to use words that I think everyone knows. Um, <laughs> so most of the skills that a caregiver would need to develop in order to care for someone would be applicable regardless of what the diagnosis or the disease their loved one has. Okay. Just as an example, a lot of the behavioral symptoms of Parkinson's disease and dementia overlap. So okay. if there's a caregiver who knows how to address agitation, anxiety, uh, impulsive and rude behavior, mm -hmm. those skills would be transferable across uh, different diagnoses. Also, as one ages, the chances of them experiencing frailty also increase. So uh, if we are educating a caregiver on skills, for example, how to move someone from the bed to a wheelchair, 
just as an example, those would be so broadly applicable regardless right. of the diagnosis. Right. So that should be the focus of caregiver education interventions, focusing on building skills rather than focusing on the traditional or conventional classroom education. Okay, this is dementia and this is what you need to expect. Our goal is to build skills and competence within caregivers. Okay, and can you do all that virtually? Because some of that you'd think someone, you'd need someone to come in and show you how to move someone from a chair to a wheelchair or to a bed because you can learn a lot from online, but sometimes you actually have to have someone watching you do it to make sure you're doing it correctly so you don't hurt yourself. Surprisingly, the benefits of virtual training programs are even more than in-person training programs. And the reason is most of the conventional uh, caregiver interventions that are hosted in person require the attendance of the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Caregivers have a highly uncertain schedule. So it is impractical to expect them to say, okay, I am going to be free on Tuesday at 7 p.m. to go to this class or I would be available to host someone so that they can come in and show this to me. If we provide these interventions virtually, it reduces the time to travel, the need to make sure that you're available at the time. Right. Uh, So it removes a lot of the structural barriers that caregivers have cited in research, which is why I truly believe that virtual caregiver interventions would be able to address this glaring Mm -hmm. um, challenge. Yes, there are some cases where the skills would need to be demonstrated. In that case, we should be using videos instead of written text. If you see a video of someone helping someone else, yes. It really is more effective. The visual is much easier to understand. The visualization really helps building that skill. Mm -hmm. So do you actually have, from doing your scoping review, a list of some of those basic interventions put forward to make these training modules? For instance, say a video on how to move someone from a wheelchair into a bed or, or to another chair. You talked about understanding if someone has dementia if how the dementia progresses and what to look for other other sets of uh, skills that you have listed from the literature that you've read that can be put into some of these new um, training programs one of the things that is underemphasized in literature and in common day-to-day practice is advanced care planning and end-of-life care, Uh caregivers do need to understand. Of course, they know in their heart that the inevitable would happen, but in our society, death is stigmatized so much that people do not want to think about it. Mm -hmm. If caregivers acknowledge it, if they have the skills and understanding of advanced care planning and end-of-life care, it would make for a relatively... uh, more tolerable and acceptable transition for Mm -hmm. the loved one and for themselves as well. That is something that I would also advocate for people to engage in. So 
with everything that you've learned and you've explained, uh, you know, the importance of some of having some sort of training and virtual is, like you said, is, is probably an easy one for most because you don't have to get yourself to a place at mm-hmm. a specific time. So with all of that and understanding some of the areas that needs to be covered in these training programs to help the, the caregiver, the family caregiver, what are you expecting policymakers now to, to do with what you've learned? Um, because at the end of the day, it's great that you're doing the research, but we, you know, we want it to come to fruition. Yeah, you want some of that put in place or at least be looked at for not just your own company that you're working with across Canada. So how do you get your research to get the policymakers to make change? That's a great question. Uh, Like you said, knowledge without change is almost meaningless. The reason policymakers should pay attention to this research is there's been a lot of discussion around the importance of the caregiver in recent times, um, and it is also reflected in the aging strategy that Canada has. Uh, It is one of the important pillars in the strategy. Now, how we support caregivers is the question. Are we just providing caregivers respite care, which provides them temporary relief uh, for three hours a day, three hours a week? Or are we providing them tangible resources so that they can confidently take care of their loved one at home? Mm -hmm. That is the difference. With these education interventions, the government would essentially be providing caregivers the tools and the skills to take care of themselves and their loved ones in a way that is uh, agreeable to them. They would be, uh, they would feel a lot better about themselves. And also, there's, pro- it has been proven to show a good impact on the health and wellness of everyone involved. Right. Ultimately. One of the uh, one of the bigger reasons why the government should pay attention to caregiver education, especially virtual caregiver education, is it reduces healthcare expenditure. If a caregiver is able to take care of someone, the number of emergency visits could arguably be reduced. Right. The number of hospital uh, readmissions could be reduced. The dependence on the healthcare system in its as the only source of information would be alleviated. That burden could be shared. Right. So it is imperative to provide caregivers uh, these tools. At the same time, I would also like to say that not all of this, I'm talking about sharing the loan of taking care of our aging population with the caregiver, not offloading it to the caregiver. Right. There shouldn't be a situation where the caregiver is the primary and the only source of support for the person uh, with dementia. Yes. Uh, The government cannot have a a very laissez-faire approach and they cannot just raise their hands and say, okay, the caregiver is responsible for this because that is ethically detrimental mm-hmm. to the caregiver. Right. I think uh, you've hit it on the nail there. I mean, because you're right, governments could go and get, it's all up to you, and you know, we're not going to really help you. 
if they're doing some of that, they need to supply that support around it and vice versa. And then say, but when you're, the person you're looking after gets to this point in time, we will take over more responsibility, etc. So it has to be this sort of tiered approach um, exactly. to make sure everyone is okay. I have another question for you. We're talking about virtual training programs. And I've seen this before, and I've asked this question before in, in other scenarios. We're assuming everyone has a computer or a mobile phone. And I hate to say it, but not everyone does. You're and so what do we do right. there? You're absolutely right. The digital divide in our society still exists. And you'll see that that is exacerbated in cases where the communities are marginalized. Let's say... Uh, a socioeconomically disadvantaged um, older adult, they are less likely to have a mobile phone as opposed to someone who is uh, who's richer. Yeah. So when I say virtual training programs, it is all encompassing. It could be in uh, the format of a website. It could also be in the form of telephonic conversations. Okay. Some of the interventions that I studied in my scoping review, they uh, used telephonic consultations with the caregivers. Okay. Yes, it does add a layer of scheduling difficulties and it introduces um, a contingency of a, a human factor there. Right. But it still enables us to reach the um, geographically secluded older adults or right. people who do not have robust access to technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, I feel like we're headed in the right direction, especially as uh, a country like Canada, where the access to technology and internet is increasing and improving uh, across the board. I was extremely surprised when I saw that the disparities in access to technology are so much higher in the United States than in Canada. All right. I was absolutely surprised because you would think that not only because USA has better infrastructure than Canada, uh, but they're also geographically more advantaged than us. Uh, They would have better access to technology. But they don't. However, that is just not the case. I, th- I think for these sorts of training programs to sort of be helped as well, we don't use our libraries enough. You know, most libraries now have got computers and, and you can have access to those computers. So again, it comes down to educating of if you don't have something yourself, don't worry, you can still download the information you need. Just go to your local library. That is exactly where the role of the municipal government comes in. There is such a big movement of age-friendly cities and age-friendly communities going on right now. And one of the key domains is access to communication and information. Most of that is provided through libraries or radio or other means of uh, mass outreach. But having access to a workstation at a library where these caregiver education modules are loaded up would be such a good way to expand the reach of the virtual training programs. Uh, Funny story, 
I live in a condo which has been declared by the city of Ottawa as a naturally occurring retirement community. Most of the people in the building are older adults and I absolutely love it. You must I, be your element. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> but we have a salon in the building and there's a workstation there with oh, internet access. Right, so people right. who don't have a computer at their home can go and use it. So it's like going to the business centre in a hotel. Exactly. It's, it's there for you, which makes perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah. So... It, I think as um, a society, we should also take a look at, okay, what is it about these buildings that makes them a naturally occurring retirement mm -hmm. community? Why are people, uh, why are older adults living here so happy and they're thriving? Why don't we take these elements and replicate it across the city mm -hmm. so that every place in the city is conducive to the well-being of older adults? Mm -hmm. And that helps not only older adults, but their caregivers as well. Well, you've opened up a lot of ideas there for policymakers, community members, and hopefully for the family caregivers or families in general to, to think about um, for their loved ones of, you know, how, how are we going to support our loved one? So you've opened up a lot there just from what seems a very small scoping uh, review that you did but clearly there was a lot of things there and I, th and I think also your background probably helped as well with that so best of luck with it thank you so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure and good luck with everything else that you're trying to do here thank you so much Colette I really had a good time chatting with you good but that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC Podcast. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.